0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we begin our last and final week of our current series, Journey to the Cross with Dr. John Newfeld. The message today is entitled, The Journey Necessitates the Death of Jesus. Turning to the four gospels, we'll look at familiar passages that describe Jesus' Last Supper with the disciples that took place on Wednesday to Thursday morning
1: of the Passion Week. Have you ever read a bad novel? Now, in your estimation, what makes for a really bad novel? Well, for one, and on this I think we're all going to agree, a bad novel is authored by someone who doesn't write well. The author is not imaginative, that means doesn't know how to command the language to excite our imaginations. But I think a really bad novel is also one in which the plot is predictable. There are no surprises along the way, no unexpected turns in the road, no new vistas, nothing that fills us with amazement or bewilders us or brings us a new understanding of the complexity or the disappointment or the loveliness of life. That's one of the reasons I can't stand standard romances. It's not just that I'm a guy who doesn't like sappy stories. Now, it is true that I don't like sappy stories, but I really don't like the predictability of guy meets gal, they fall in love, they have a falling out, they get it figured out, they live happily ever after. It seems predictable. It seems like tedium to me. It's not just that way in fiction. It's also true in real life. The real life stories that have held the human race spellbound for centuries are the events that never went in a straight line. You can see that something lovely is about to happen, but the way it happens, well, no one would ever have imagined such a series of events. That's why we hear the expression, you can't make this stuff up. That's why Jesus' Passion Week is an event that simply won't disappear from the human imagination. We know that the king is coming to claim his throne, but none of us could have imagined what was transpiring. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and is hailed as the conquering king. Instead of basking in that glory, he deliberately offends everyone, from the money changer in the temple to the elders of Israel to the chief priests and teachers of the law. He has so enraged them, he will push them to go well beyond what they were planning. They planned to kill him after the Passover feast, but not now. And he has pushed them so hard, they will murder him in front of the watching crowd. And as the tension rises, Jesus is left sitting outside on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, facing the beauty of the temple and describing to them how the series of events that is unfolding will tear the temple to the ground and will unleash a horror on the nation of Israel that will drive them from their promised land. Only after a lengthy series of world-shaking events will the king come to take his seat as the king of Israel and the rightful ruler of the world. Now, after that emotional and turbulent Tuesday, Jesus would have gone back to stay in Bethany. Almost nothing is said about Wednesday. Some think he did go to the temple one last time, but we really can't be sure. Mark says the chief priests and scribes had a private meeting and reaffirmed that they intended to kill Jesus, but decided that it should not be done at the Passover but they needed to track his whereabouts, especially the the minute Passover was done. So they met with Judas Iscariot and agreed with him to pay him money so that he could signal them where he was and when to arrest him quietly. It seems that it was even quiet with the religious leaders. They would remain discreet and let Passover run its course. Most likely, Wednesday was a fairly quiet day, a time of reflection. If you like the image, Wednesday was the eye of the hurricane. The winds have swept into Jerusalem with a terrible fury, and then for a brief moment, all is calm. But we're left with the sure notion that this calm cannot last long. Something even more momentous than the fevered pitch of the last several days is about to happen. Thursday dawn. It's an understatement to say that Thursday was a historic day. For on this day, Jesus would inaugurate a new covenant as he would take his disciples into the upper room and raise a cup and utter fascinating words. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Thursday, according to the Jewish calendar, was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. It was the day in which, officially, all leaven was removed from Jewish households. By evening, all faithful Jews were to eat the Passover meal. There are several things Matthew doesn't record about Jesus' activities of that day. That's because Matthew was written to the Jews, and all of them knew exactly what Jesus and his followers would have done. Probably from about three to five in the afternoon, Jesus would have sent two of his disciples to the temple to slaughter the Passover lamb, as it was the custom for some out of each family to slaughter the lamb for their family. And in the time of Jesus, men representing their family or group would be allowed to enter the temple courts. Each man, not the priest, would slaughter his own lamb while the event was announced by priests who were blowing trumpets. Priests stood in a row between the court where lambs were slaughtered and the altar. They would be holding silver or golden bowls in their hands. The first priest in each row would catch the blood of the lamb whose throat was being slit and then pass the bowl, now filled with blood, to the next priest on down the row. At the same time, they would be passing up empty bowls, so they were constantly interchanging blood-filled bowls with empty bowls. The last priest, the one next to the altar, would then throw the sacrificial blood against the base of the altar. A drain pipe ran from the base of the altar and fed into the Kidron Valley below, as a dry valley now ran red with the blood of slaughtered lambs. And how many lambs would be slaughtered? Well, if you believe Josephus, who, by the way, was born shortly after the death of Jesus, he claimed that at one time, more than a quarter million lambs were slain. Hence there was an immense amount of blood running like a river from the altar. And why? Well, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the Bible also declares Israel's sin in the time of the Exodus, that the only reason that ancient Israel was not destroyed along with the Egyptians was not because Israel was righteous, but rather because a lamb was slaughtered and its blood was applied. Now, all the while this sacrifice of lambs was going on during the Passover, the Levites would be singing the Hallel, that is, the songs taken from Psalm 113 to 118. Some of the lamb was to be burned on the altar, and some was to be taken home by the worshiper and then to be eaten with his family. We assume that when Jesus had selected a place to eat the Passover meal, all these preparations were done. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus instructed his disciples to enter Jerusalem and find a man carrying a jar of water and say to him, Jesus says my time is at hand. Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare the Passover. And by the time Jesus arrived, all the preparations we are speaking of had already been done. The feast with Jesus and his disciples took place in a large upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, most would have dressed in their best clothing. If we can think of how special Christmas Eve is to many, you know, they go to church with their family. There's a joyous and yet reverent feel to the event. That was Passover. But this Passover meal was unlike any other. It started out so strangely, so shockingly. Jesus rose from the supper, put aside his outer garment, which may have meant he was stripped to the waist, put a towel around his waist, and then with every eye fixed on him, he put water into a basin, then moved from one disciple to the other, and began to wash their feet and wipe them with a towel. It was upsetting. Because foot washing was an activity reserved for the lowest of slaves. By the time Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter was so emotional, he simply refused to let Jesus be so demeaned in front of him. He just couldn't bear it. You shall never wash my feet, he says. But Jesus says that unless Peter allow this, he can have no part of him. Peter agrees. And Jesus finishes his task, puts on his outer garments, and resumes his place. All eyes are fastened on him. He says, do you understand what I've just done? No one speaks. Jesus continues, I am your teacher and I'm your Lord, but I have served you tonight. Learn from me and from now on, that's how you should treat each other. And with that beginning, the meal starts. They would have eaten the roasted lamb, which would have been slaughtered only hours earlier, indicating the shedding of blood that spared one from the angel of death and the judgment of God. They would also have eaten unleavened bread, also called the bread of haste. The idea was that when God's deliverance came, it came so suddenly you didn't have time to put yeast into your bread and wait for it to rise. God's salvation came quickly. Then there would have been the bitter herbs signifying the bitterness of slavery. Then something called the haraset, which is a mixture or a puree of nuts, apples, cinnamon, and so forth, which was to represent the mortar used to make bricks in Egypt. On one table beside each disciple would have been four cups, which each participant was to drink, and when each cup was drunk, they would repeat words from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. That was the normal practice of Passover, but even at the beginning, the disciples would see how painful this night would be. It was a night filled with sorrow. On the one hand, it was the ugliest night they had ever experienced, yet it was to become the loveliest night they would ever have spent in their lives. It was starting out so very strangely, so unexpectedly, so filled with unstoppable emotion that threatened to sweep them somewhere, but they didn't know where. That current was irresistible. And when we come back, we will see that when we celebrate communion today, we should remember and wonder of what happened that sacred night. I can only begin
0: to imagine what sort of emotions the disciples were going through as they ate this last Passover meal with Jesus. As we can see from this introduction, it's hard to completely grasp the significance of this event, not only for the disciples, but for the nation of Israel unless we get a wider, more complete biblical context. After the break, Dr. Neufeld examines in more vivid detail what happened that night and what Christ revealed about himself and the future during the Last Supper. Greek philosopher Socrates once said, The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. That may be somewhat true, but is this all there is to wisdom? Well, according to the Bible, God has given us the answer to how we can find wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And this was the subject of Dr. Newfeld's recent one-week series called Skillful Living. We covered some of the key passages in Proverbs discussing themes like what is wisdom? How do we attain it? This series is available on CD for free, so be sure to order yours today. Call us at one 800 663 2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: During every Jewish Passover, there were, in fact, four cups that each participant was expected to drink. And so they would lift up the first cup and repeat the words from Exodus 6:6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. It was probably at the drinking of the first cup that Luke records Christ's words. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, "'Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes.'" See, after this cup was drunk, the tradition then demanded that each participant wash their hands, hands washed from the burden of slavery. Then they would sing a hymn. Now came the second cup. Again, it was accompanied from words from Exodus 6.6, "'I will deliver you from slavery.'" Hands were again washed, and then normally one would take unleavened bread, break it, dip bread into the bitter herbs and the harasset, and then hand some of it to each participant. It's probably here that Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, it's one thing to be filled with sorrow, for he will suffer. It's quite another to hear this. You talk to people who have been wounded by fellow believers, and they will say, I wish I had been persecuted by pagans. That's but a faint reflection of the emotion that now was injected into the room. It was stunning. It was unthinkable. Added to that, in the ancient Near East, when you accept someone's hospitality and eat at their table, doing harm is the most reprehensible thing you can do. This mirrors David's words in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. At this point, I wonder whether any of the disciples trusted themselves. The tension was so great, they didn't even protest. No one said, I would never do that. Being with Jesus had taught them many things, and they were already aware that he knew them better than they knew themselves. They had seen themselves at their worst in his presence. they were all left with wondering which one of them were capable of this. And so all they can now ask is, is it I, Lord? What a painful night. And Jesus answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Well, they had all dipped their hands in the dish. He wasn't answering their question, and they were still left with wondering why not. I think part of the reason is that this was a warning to Judas. He was subtly speaking to him. Jesus is saying, think about it. I know where you've been, and I know what you've done. Do you now feel the 30 pieces of silver burning in your pocket? And then he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus knew that this was a part of the predestined plan of the Father, but he's letting Judas know he knows. And then an amazing moment occurs. Perhaps Judas wonders whether Christ really knows or is he just bluffing. And so with a bold poker face, the man with blood money in his pocket looks squarely into the eye of Jesus, showing no emotion and says, is it I? And Jesus says it is. And Luke tells us that Satan had already entered into his heart. And by now, Judas is a thoroughly demon-possessed man. With that, he rushes out of the room and John adds, It was night. Yes, it was. The man was embraced by the darkness. While Jesus and his followers have drunk two Passover cups, but the night is far from over. There's still far more drama that night than could possibly be imagined. And after the second cup came the eating of the Passover lamb. This meal would always end with a piece of unleavened bread, which they would call the Afakamen, or after dish. The meaning of this bread seems to be that it was a symbol of the only bread that poor slaves had, a piece of bread that could be hidden in your clothing. It was the only hope of survival for the poor slaves who worked hard and needed something to eat. Holding that piece of bread in his hand came the next shock. After blessing this bread, he said to his disciples, Take eat. This is my body. I'm your only hope for survival, your only hope for deliverance from slavery. Take eat. This is my body. Then after this last bit of bread was eaten came the third cup of Passover. This cup was called the cup of blessing. At least that's what the Apostle Paul called it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Do you remember the words that were spoken over the first two cups? The first cup, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And the second one, I will deliver you from slavery. And now the third cup, also words taken from Exodus 6, 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with these words, Jesus takes the third cup, promising redemption, the payment of a price to redeem from the house of slavery. Jesus says, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, yes, a new covenant, a new binding agreement from God, a price will be paid to make the deliverance from Egypt seem like small potatoes. You will be delivered from sin and be presented whole and worthy before God. God. You know, there's so much more to be said on that night that Jesus spoke in the upper room. John records five chapters of his 21-chapter book of Jesus' words spoken in the upper room. I'm referring to John chapters 13 to 17. On that night, Jesus told them that he was going away, and where he is going, they cannot come. And they're all troubled. But Jesus, you'll remember, told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. They will know the way to him, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now is the time to trust in him. But Philip, one of the remaining 11, says, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus has to respond to him and say, have I been with you so long that you don't recognize me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way. And then Jesus tells them that while he's gone, he's going to send the Holy Spirit so they will never be alone. Among other things, he promises them that the presence of the Holy Spirit will be so strong that the Holy Spirit will equip them for bringing the gospel to the whole world. And more than that, the Holy Spirit will guarantee that they will accurately remember and accurately communicate all that he has begun to do and teach in the world. And that's why today we have the doctrine of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writing of the scripture that these men gave us. But before they leave the room that night, Jesus bows his knee and begins to pray. That prayer has been called the high priestly prayer. Father, he prays, the time has come. Right now, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He is speaking of the glory that happens when he is crucified. And with that, he prays intensely for the 11 in the room. Protect them, he prays, from the evil one. He prays, give them unity that they may be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. So he prays. But before he is done, he prays, I do not just pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the teaching of these 11. I hope all of us hear this. On that night, do you know that Jesus prayed for you? He prayed for those of us who believe, and what he did in that room was for us. And when he was done, they all sang a hymn, and they rose, and Jesus led them out the door, taking them to Gethsemane. There's never a night like that one. As we come to this again tomorrow, we will follow Jesus all the way to that agonizing place of prayer called Gethsemane. But before we do that, would you just join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed with what Jesus did with his disciples on that night. We thank you for the inauguration of a new covenant, a covenant in your blood. Thank you, O Jesus that you told your disciples that you would give them a new relationship with God based upon not the blood of lambs, but on the basis of your blood shed once for all for our sins. Thank you for what has been given to us on this Holy Week. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.
0: John, thanks so much for sharing on this subject of the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's uh, brought uh, some great revelations to me about its whole purpose and meaning. Uh, But we can be intimidated by this subject. I guess the whole idea of holding on to guilt or feelings of not being worthy. So we hold back from participating in the Lord's Supper. How would you instruct people in
1: this way? My years of being a pastor, I found many people hesitant about the Lord's table. I mean, they remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, that if any of us partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And they say, therefore, that because of that, they don't want to be guilty of that, so let's not do this. Well, first of all, let me say that to receive the communion elements is a great privilege and a great blessing. And when Paul warns us, he says, if anyone will not properly esteem the body of the Lord, what God wants of us is that we think about Christ's death and esteem it as it should be done. We should say of the Lord and his sacrifice and his death, that was enough for my sins. I am unworthy, but Christ has made me worthy. That's why the Lord's table ought to fill us with joy And we should literally be running towards it. Thanks, John. We appreciate that. And we appreciate what you've taught us today.
0: And we look forward to joining you again tomorrow as we consider the journey Christ begins to take to Gethsemane. So join us tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. I hope that today's message has encouraged you as we reflect upon a deeper, more complete understanding of the Lord's Supper. What Jesus inaugurated that night through the Passover meal was something meant for all Christians. He has come to redeem us through an outstretched arm. And I pray that after what we've considered today, we may never be tempted to take communion again without thoughtful consideration or take its meaning for granted. Please join us tomorrow as we continue our series where Jesus' journey takes Him to Gethsemane. Has this daily Bible teaching program had an impact on your walk with God? Did you know that because of the dedication of our ministry partners that this program is available across the country? Well, this year, We want to invite you personally to participate in our Partner to Tell campaign. Help us to continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In 2015, the Partner to Tell campaign reached beyond our goal of 100 new monthly partners. So in 2016, we're aiming to increase our monthly partnership to a grand total of 500, which means an additional 120 ministry friends making a monthly commitment. Your participation in the Partner to Tell campaign makes this Bible teaching program possible. If you've never considered becoming a monthly partner, become one today. Join us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.